space, the art and the sacred art and even making visible uh, God. And this comes down to that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Because God took on human flesh and became visible, we can depict him. This is the Pantocrator icon, meaning almighty. Jesus Christ, the almighty, is a powerful title attesting to Christ's divinity. And it is um, unsurprising that Christ's face is often found to be um, stern in these icons. One of the, th the things about um, iconography that you will get to see is the faces tend to be with very little emotion. This is not capturing a moment in time. The lack of emotion is to present a calm, a calmness of spirit that the saint or the icon has for eternity. And so in this um, icon, which is one of the very oldest icons of Jesus Christ found in Mount Sinai, but dates from the 6th century. If you actually just cover up one side of his face, you'll see it very, a very compassionate Christ on one side, and on the other side, you'll see more of a stern um, Christ with the raised eyebrow. And so even in this one icon, we have that sense of judgment and compassion. The um, halo is, of course, a symbol of holiness. The Greek letters that you can barely see, um, omega, omicron, and nu, literally mean the being, or more precisely what we would say, he who is. Icons are often um, labeled and and. If you look at his hand raised in blessing, you will see that the fingers spell out the four-letter Christogram I-C-X-E. And, and where this comes from is the I, the C, the X, the C. So it is uh, Jesus Christ, but touching the third finger with the thumb is also a sign of the Trinity. This is a 16th century Russian icon. An icon is an instrument for the transmission of the Christian faith. It is no less than the written word in Greek, Orthodox, uh, and Byzantine and Russian iconography, theology in line and in color. In Orthodox theology, the artist who interprets scripture is of the same level as the theologian and the writer. So the iconographer is a theologian who teaches in terms of color and line and image. The story of this icon is that um, th that Luke, and Luke is the one who was painting there, and you can see the angel behind his shoulder, 
telling him what to paint, and Mary holding baby Jesus. And this is thought to be the very, very first icon that Luke is the original iconographer. Uh, the red color is used to represent humanity. And you can see blue is symbolizing um, divinity. And we wonder, why is Mary wearing blue underneath? Well, she is a sign of divinity in the world that comes to humanity. So it is divinity cloaked in humanity. We will see Jesus wearing red cloaked in blue. And that is a sign of Jesus' humanity cloaked in divinity. So getting to the actual Christmas icons, our first Christmas icon is the icon of the nativity. Or I'm sorry, the Annunciation. This is a 14th century icon, Russian icon. Um, and it is tempera on wood. It's in Macedonia, so it might be Byzantine instead of Russian. Now, the icon of the Annunciation is that moment when Gabriel announces to Mary that she will give birth to the Christ child. And so the angel is in the colors of white and blue, and the white always a symbol of the heavenly being. And Gabriel is coming as a messenger. His feet are as if he's running, and the staff, is also a symbol of the messenger, and he's reaching out to Mary, who is sitting on her throne for the queen of heaven, and um, just hearing the word of God for the first time. Mary holds in her hand yarn, and in tradition it is said that Mary wove the curtains for the temple. The Holy Spirit is coming down upon her. You can see from heaven above. And there's a little dove or, or cross in that circle just below the red cloth. And it splits into three rays for Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The red curtain that you see over them is simply a symbol for it, this happens inside. Now, one of the things about iconography that we often think, well, they didn't know how to depict reality. They weren't trying to. The perspective in iconography does not go with a vanishing point somewhere out in ahead of us, where things get smaller as they get further away. In iconography, the vanishing point is the viewer. And so you have reverse perspective where things get larger as you look at them and going back and smaller. So you are the subject of the icon ultimately, the one who is venerating, the one who is seeking that glimpse into heaven. And here is another icon of the nativity, and you see it's very different. This is a Russian icon from the 12th century. It's one of the very few icons that survived the Mongol invasion. And um, I would show you this icon 
just because we again see Gabriel coming and announcing to Mary and Mary wearing the blue robe and if you look closely you can see the red yarn in her hand and um, she is cloaked in red you see I you have to look really closely to see what there is up in the sky but it looks like that might be God sitting on the moon the Heavenly Father sitting on the moon and um, the Holy Spirit being imparted to Mary. Now I want you to look at that face and the hair of the angel Gabriel and think about where you might have seen that already this morning. That is our angel with the golden hair that we painted in class and it is the angel Gabriel. I'm going to go back one more time and you can see that some of the uh, conventions in iconography are the large eyes which are windows of the soul, the long nose, the small mouth that is always closed in silence for the contemplation of the word and you can see that Gabriel has his third finger down, touching his thumb once again, or the, the fourth finger, so two fingers is up and one finger is down, and that is the blessing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And our angel Gabriel. So now we're going to turn to the icon of the nativity. And this is a 15th century icon, a Russian icon. And it is a motif that goes, that is for centuries. And of course, because you're always doing a prototype of an icon. You're not copying what has come before, but you're basing your work off of a prototype that was created by an iconographer as the theologian. So his message is what you are transferring from hundreds of years ago into today. So it's just as if we were to write scripture. When we write an icon, we are writing the sacred theology from the long ago. And so in this nativity icon, there are so many things going on. Um, <laughs> You've got Jesus being born in the cave. Uh, a shepherd is blowing his horn. There are wise men and a star. All of these events are happening so that the icon tells a story. And you see this often in uh, wall painting and frescoes that the whole scene is condensing all of the events in time into one pictorial. And all of the lines of the icon when you, when you look at just the um, composition, you've got this, the line of the pyramid with Jesus in the center, the line here of Mary's mat, and even the way in which the figures, lines all point inward to that central part of the icon where Christ is born. And we're going to take this icon piece by piece so <laughs> we can look at it more closely. You see that Jesus was born in the 
we think of it as the stable, but the word is actually Cataluma, which is out in a cave. So the animals where Jesus was, were that were, uh, there aren't any animals present at the birth of Christ in any of the Gospels. We always think they are, but you can see the ox and the donkey are there in the cave because Isaiah said, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. And that's why you have the ox and the donkey. Now you see, Jesus does not exactly look like a little baby. He looks like a little man. Jesus is always shown as being a little man when he's a baby. And that is because Jesus came fully formed. That's the theology there. And Jesus isn't in this one in a little crib, but that is actually an altar, which signifies Jesus' sacrifice. He's wrapped in the bands of swaddling clothes of bands of cloth that also represent the linen cloths when he is wrapped up in the tomb. And of course, the cave also is the tomb. So we see all kinds of theology happening there just inside that cave in the rocky, craggy mountains that are the roughness of life. Uh, the light shines in the darkness. The mountains don't really look like mountains. They are stair steps to heaven. And you can see all the stair steps that lead up. Now, Mary is lying on this mat. Um, it puzzles me, but nonetheless, she's reclining. And, um, but she's not looking at Jesus. We'll see in a moment who she's looking at. But right now, I want you to look at the three wise men who are already on their way with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but I want you to look at these three wise men because it's also a convention that one is elderly, one is middle-aged, and one is young. On the right, you've got these very odd-looking sheep, don't ask me why, eating the tree, eating at the tree, and the shepherd who is singing his lute to the music of the angels above. Now, who is Mary looking at? Well, and this is where it gets strange, and from a extra-canonical uh, writing, Joseph is in the one, the one who is hunched over. Now, he's older than Mary because it's thought that he was a widower, and so, but he's still wondering about this whole virgin birth thing. And so, he's sitting there, and he's, bit in doubt, and the old man in the hairy coat there is the devil coming to tempt him to try to get him to disbelieve the miracle of the incarnation. And over on the right, uh, we see these two um, nursemaids and the little baby Jesus already born, and it is also in uh, an extra, extra canonical work that Joseph brought to nursemaids so that they could attend to the baby 
when the baby had been born. There's always a tree in the nativity scene, and it is the Jesse tree, which, of course, is that tree that is of the line of David. Just to show you a number of nativity scenes where we can see the different conventions happening in different ways. So we've still got the dark cave with the donkey and the ox. This one, the baby Jesus actually looks a little bit more like he's in some kind of a manger, but the little man is still wrapped up in his clothes. Mary's on a different colored mat, um, still with her blue divinity cloaked in humanity. And there's Joseph trying to figure things out, and then nursemaids, and this one has really pretty sheep. You notice in this one, the wise men are coming on horses. And the star is there in the sky that the wise men follow. And this is a nativity of the Lord, a very old one, um, around the year 1000. And even by then, there are the conventions. The baby Jesus, the ox and the ass. Joseph is over on the left pondering things. And we have no Satan in this one, yay. And we've got an old shepherd man over here that the angel is announcing the birth of God. And we've got some really cool sheep, and it looks like that they are curly horned sheep. And another um, icon of the nativity, this is 14th century Serbia. This one's a fresco, which is also considered an icon. And just another a way in which you can see the way in which the prototype is interpreted and reinterpreted through the centuries in different traditions. In this one, Mary's actually looking at the baby. There's no Satan. But you, if you look closely at the wise men, you will still see an elderly, a middle-aged, and a young one. This is an icon um, from the East um, that dates to the 14th century. It is in the monastery of St. Catherine of Siena because during the time of the iconoclastic controversies, when part of the church said, no, there aren't supposed to be images, many, 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 many icons were destroyed. Now, St. Catherine's monastery is out in the desert at Mount Sinai, and they never got word <laughs> to destroy the icons. So the oldest icons are at um, St. Catherine's, uh, at the monastery there at the base of Mount Sinai. And so this is, again, just another interpretation. And you'll see the angels and the star in heaven. And again, the wise men, one is elderly, one is middle, and one is young. And there's Mary and um, everything there happening. Uh, no Satan in this one either. And the wise men have left their horses down there in the corner. You see little sheep running around. Uh, just fabulous in the way the conventions are interpreted through hundreds of years. Now we turn to St. Nicholas. The story of St. Nicholas is that Nicholas was the bishop in Turkey or what we would consider present-day Turkey. 
And the way the story goes is that in St. Nicholas's Parish, there was a family that became very poor, and they were about to sell their daughtery, daughters into slavery, into sex slavery. Uh, the creditors were going to um, take away everything and even kill the family, and so their only choice was to sell these daughters into slavery. Well, the night before this was going to happen, Nicholas came and threw a bag of gold through the window of the house, saving that family and paying off that debt so the daughters would not be sold into slavery. It's quite a different um, story than we hear about St. Nicholas today. But St. Nicholas was really there fighting injustice and doing compassion in a very powerful way. Now, St. Nicholas looks like a Klingon. Am I right? Okay, so how come St. Nicholas looks like a Klingon? And again, it's all convention and theology. The big eyes are the windows to the soul. The long nose is part of the convention. The ears are big and facing forward to better hear the word of God. And what about that bulbous forehead? Well, St. Nicholas was one of wisdom. He had a big brain. And the wisdom spots are those lights there in the center of the forehead. Now, when I was reading that book of joy that I preached about this morning and will preach about in just a few minutes, scientists are finding out that there is a place in the center of our heads and the frontal cortex, right in the middle frontal cortex, that actually works to calm us down. And so the ancients knew some powerful wisdom um, that we are just uh, learning now. Um, you, the um, stole with the cross is the bishop's stole. He's holding his gospel. And you can barely see it, but there he often holds a bag of coins. His hand is held in blessing. Again, you've got the fingers crossing and the thumb with that third finger touching in blessing. Here's another St. Nicholas, and he looks a little more cheery in these robes, but look, and you'll see he's holding a gold bag of coins. Can you see the bag of coins? Barely. See, it's right here. And he's listening, in this one, he's listening to Mary and Jesus, who are up there speaking in his ears. This is late 19th century. And this one, um, Nicholas is dressed in all of these Episcopal vestments with the cross and... Um, Blessing and the onlooker, the medallions on either side again are Joseph and Mary, the bishop's uh, stole with the um, cross, and he really, really looks like a Klingon or something in this one. I, but he's got his bag where he would have carried the gold coins. I painted a St. Nicholas, 
And for days and days, he really looked like a Klingon. But he's less Klingon now, and I hope that you'll go and, and look at him um, before you leave. So that is St. Nicholas. So now Jesus is born, and we have a, an icon of Mary with Jesus. And this is called Theotokos of Vladimir. And Theotokos means God-bearer. And so Mary is the God-bearer, the one who gives birth to God. And this is the only one of the only icons in which there is a tenderness between Mary and Jesus. And so you see Mary holding the baby Jesus and Jesus clinging to her and then touching the face. Still, Mary, either in, in these icons of tenderness, Mary looks sometimes at the viewer and she's pointing to him, or she may, in other ones, look at Jesus. This is called the Virgin of the Dawn or Our Lady of the Dawn. It is a 14th century icon. And um, again, from that convention. And this was our prototype in our class for our um, mother of tenderness that you'll see over on the table. This was a, a we painted an interpretation of this interpretation of this prototype. And this is the Mount Athos Virgin of Tenderness from the 14th century. And uh, again, you see another interpretation of a prototype. I'm gonna stop talking here in a minute, but just to tell you a little about how to make an icon, icons start on a wooden board that is covered with linen cloth uh, and uh, held together with uh, rabbit's glue and then put many, many, many layers of gesso and more linen. It, the linen and the rabbit's glue keep the air from popping up and bubbles invading the the placid world of our inner being, as this uh, is uh, said. Um, so after we have we start with the whiteboard, we transfer the prototype, uh, and you can see behind the icon there's a drawing that is from the prototype that then is transferred onto the board, and we start with just the uh, basic colors. And the background you look at is kind of like garish red. That goes under the gold leaf. And it gives the gold leaf a more rich um, gold. It shines through because the gold leaf is so thin um, that that gives a richness to the gold underneath. So the icons start out dark. And you work from darkness to light. And Lynn calls this the Jesus of the frog stage because Jesus is green and he looks like a frog. Uh, and um, so all of your basic uh, areas are, are lined out. And this is, a, of course, our different icon that we painted, but it's further along. And you can see how we've built up the face from the, the dark green is still in the shadows. And then we build up from a dark flesh color which will cover the whole face, and then gradually build up, putting layer and layer and layer on the lighter parts. Of course, baby Jesus is still awaiting his face. 
and um, the Good Shepherd icon going back, you see the putting the robes together and the face, and then finally putting on the gold leaf, and there is almost finished icon. The medallions in this one are simply um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, uh, and there you have your final Good Shepherd icon. Um, Jesus carrying the sheep and holding firm on his shoulders that the sheep cannot kick or get away or hurt itself. And Jesus is the good shepherd who takes care of us and is even willing to die to save us and protect us. So this is my presentation on the icons of Christmas, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. I really don't know because I've never seen a medical icon. So, um, you know, Luke was uh, thought to be a physician. And, of course, he was a painter, too, because he was an iconographer. Uh, but I've never heard of medical icons. So all of the iconography that would be um, from the church, uh, there may be medical icons in the tradition. I just am not familiar with them. Yeah, there, there must be. So, I mean, you know, churches, early churches were also hospitals. So it's quite possible that some of the monasteries that became hospitals, the um, iconographers in those places were able to translate the compassion of Christ into medicine. You might want to hear from some of the people who actually um, did the iconography class and hear about the their experience. We paint in silence. We have uh, the iconographer's prayer, and then we paint in silence. Um, and um, it's a time of prayer and meditation and communion with the saint or uh, Christ that you are painting. So who wants to speak about um, being an icon? painting the icons. Nancy, I knew you would. Uh, Molly has uh, led some wonderful classes. If you have an opportunity, I would certainly recommend that you do this uh, before her sabbatical or after. Um, she sets the scene with this wonderful sort of what Gregorian chant, it was very quiet music in the background, and silence, not a lot of chit-chat. Uh, see, there you are all with all your friends, you want to talk about the weather and vacations and all this, and none of that. And the colors are prescribed. There's nothing, it, it's sort of like, uh, you'll hate me for saying this, it's sort of like painting by numbers. You must follow the exact color, the, you know, and, uh, for me, it was a wonderful experience. I did, I did one that I brought this morning uh, of just Jesus' face, uh, 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 pa 
Pantocrator, so it's Christ, the, uh, the ruler of all, and uh, the triumphant Christ, but um, very sympathetic, too, a beautiful human face. But for me, it was a feeling that with each stroke, um, I was inviting Jesus to, to appear in, in the work of art. So it was um, a spiritual um, experience for me that was very deep, and, and I'm, I'm no painter, and, uh, and it was a frustrating thing because I would uh, frankly prefer painting with just kind of sloppy lines, you know, and just uh, kind of impressionistic and stuff, but this was a, a something, taking ordinary wood and paint following, following the rules here, and um, illuminating something very special that I keep in my dining room. And um, so every day, every meal with them there, I can look up and see Jesus. Thank you. Just to add what Nancy said, <coughs> one of the things that amazed me most was going from Lynn's frog-faced Jesus, as she called it, because it's so dark and you cannot imagine that it's really going to turn into something as beautiful as it does. But Molly kept encouraging us and we added colors. Uh, I do have to give Molly credit for my face. I just could not get the, the eyes and mouth, but she took care of that as has my teacher on some of my early icons. I wanted to talk a little bit about not creating the icon, but having the icon in my house. I've put my two on the mantelpiece, and um, when I have my quiet time, which isn't very regular, but when I get, get it done, I look at my icons at the beginning, and there is Gabriel, God's messenger, and I think about hearing the word of God. And then there is Mary of tenderness, and I think about existing in um, <coughs> God's tenderness here in the world. And for me, they've been um, terrific ways of focusing myself. Uh, I was present when a friend of mine uh, who is Russian uh, you know, Russian descent, white Russian descent, bought an icon from someone who had collected uh, some icons, and it was like watching two ships passing in the night. She was talking about it as an art object. He was talking about it as a religious object, and when he got it home, the first thing he did is he hung it high in the corner of a room, because that's where in the Russian tradition you have your icon. I know that it's time for me to go and um, prepare for the next service, but I hope that you'll take the next few minutes to um, look at the icons and you can you know, continue the conversation. Anybody can do this. I know you don't think it's possible, but you need to look at the icons and, um, and know that this is about meditation and it's about prayer and it's about connecting with a spirituality that is more than a thousand years old and it's also just beautiful